Let's pray together. Father, you have great riches in store in Genesis 45. And I pray that you would allow your people to be able to see them, to see you and to behold your glory. Thank you, Lord, that we have been beholding your glory and the great truths that we have been singing. And now, God, as we open your word and we think upon your providence, Lord, I pray that you would steady our hearts with such truth. Pray that we would know you as you're revealed in scripture and, and, and not just assume of what you're like. I pray that we would be willing and, and ready to, to receive you and to behold you as you are. And so as your word is revealed now and it's preached, God, I, I pray that it, it goes out in power. Your spirit would be working. It wouldn't just be a man talking and people listening. It would be supernatural things taking place here in our hearts, deepening our understanding of who you are, encouraging our souls to press forward, knowing how great you are. Teach us your word, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please turn in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to Genesis chapter 45. Would you say that your life is stabilized by the sovereignty of God? Would you say your life is stabilized by the sovereignty of God? Sovereignty of God being that God is supreme in his authority and power over all things, no matter what, without exception, all the time. Is your life stabilized by that truth? Stabilized. Like standing on a rocking boat and you lose your balance and you grab the railing. Stabilized like the young girl who's about to walk an aisle to be married and she feels all the nerves in her stomach and the doors open and she feels so nervous and she clutches dad's arm. Stabilized, like flying on a plane at 30,000, 35,000 feet in the air, unexpected turbulence comes and your hand slams down on the armrest or the person beside you. Like a railing, like a dad, like an armrest, Whatever you grab onto to stabilize your life, is it God's sovereignty? What does it look like to be stabilized by God's sovereignty? A couple weeks ago, I went to a pastor's conference called Together for the Gospel in Louisville, Kentucky. 12,000 people from around the world all gathered to hear biblical preaching, to experience biblical fellowship, and to participate in the biggest choir you've ever seen. 
all gathered around what the one truth that unites us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And up front, there sits a, a pulpit, there sits a piano. It's not an entertaining conference. People don't go to this conference to be entertained. You go to this conference if you love preaching, if you love simplistic worship through song, and if you love biblical fellowship. Before each session, we would sing a few hymns together. And when I say we would sing, we would sing. 12,000 voices singing, predominantly male voices coming together singing, holy, holy, holy. And it is well. And he will hold me fast. You can imagine the the deafening effect of those 12,000 predominantly male voices filling the room And it climaxed as as we would sing a verse like, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. The environment alone and the voices filling the room moved me to worship, but there were two sessions in particular that all of a sudden the stabilizing effect of God's sovereignty became really clear. During one session, we stood to sing, and I noticed that a motorized wheelchair came beside our section and pulled up behind the row of seats. It was a grown man, had crippled hands, crippled feet, and at first I thought nothing of it, But as we started singing, all I have is Christ. And I look and the man is sitting in his wheelchair and his hands are as high as they can be. His fingers cannot stretch out, but he's lifting his hand as high as he can be with full throat singing, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Christ is my life. (laughs) I thought that's something. During another session, we sit front row this time. If you go to a conference with me, you know I like to get there, get a really close seat, be there early. We sit front row and we begin singing with these 12,000 voices charging our backs. And I thought, this is a taste of heaven. (laughs) And in the section beside us, was reserved seating for individuals who had hearing impairments. And mid-song singing nothing but the blood of Jesus, I look over and one of the dads in the section, he's not deaf but his son is, the dad turns around and his smile is from ear to ear. He's, he's smiling so big, you can tell he's just taking in the voices singing, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And he's just, he's taking it in, and I believe just taking in, thinking, what will make me whole again? What will make my son whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And it hit me. As the dad is just absorbing this audible avalanche coming. As I'm absorbing these 12,000 voices filling the room. His son can't hear any of it. They're signing. 
deafening effect of voices. I've had a crick in my neck for two weeks and I grumble. (laughs) How can a man with crippled hands and feet, how can a, a person deaf can't hear any of this around, how can they lift their voices and sing, all I have is Christ, what can make me whole again, nothing but the blood of Jesus? They can sing because they believe there is a God that has stabilized their life, who has purposes in their affliction that they may not understand and complete right now, but one day they will stand from that chair and look Jesus in the eye and hear with their ears, well done, my good and faithful servant. And they sing in the chair, While they hear nothing, they sing with stabilizing joy. Does the sovereignty of God stabilize your life when it throws you around, when the unexpected comes, when the turbulence knocks you off your balance? Do you grab onto it? Say, God, I believe you're in control. We've been studying this story of Joseph who's been tossed around quite a bit. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. He's been falsely accused of sexual assault by his commander's wife. He's thrown into prison. He's completely forgotten about by the people that he's helped the most. And through it all, God has been arranging the circumstances to get Joseph precisely where he wanted him. He serves Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, very well, which promotes him to the, high, the second highest seat in all of Egypt. A famine comes, Joseph's in charge of the grain distribution. It's been a little over 20 years since his brothers sold him into slavery, and now his brothers come back to buy food in Egypt, and they have no idea that Joseph is the one who's selling the food. So that's where we've been in recent weeks. And Joseph recognizes them, and after a series of events that he kind of messes with them a little bit, he has the opportunity to now reveal himself to them. And when he does, remarkably, Joseph isn't focused on revenge. And just as remarkable, he's not focused on self-pity. Instead, what we see in the text Joseph is stabilized by the sovereignty of God. It would have been easy to say, this is your fault. Look what you did to me. He doesn't. He knows God's in control. His focus is so clear in the text. And so as I read this, see if you can spot Joseph being stabilized by the sovereignty of God. Look with me, Genesis 45, starting in verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, 
whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these, these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing for, nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler of over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all they have, all that you have. Verse 11, there I will provide for you and there and for there are yet five years of the famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept upon them. And that his, after that his brothers talked with him. Verse 16. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, say to your brothers, do this, load your beast and go back to the land of Canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say this, do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows, 10 donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt, 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for their father on their journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. Verse 25, so they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived and Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. There are three emphases I want to point out to you in this text. Number one, God's sending. Number two, God's purpose. And number three, God's provision. God's sending, God's purpose, and God's provision. Number one, Notice the emphasis in the text on God's sending. The chapter begins mid-story, verse 1, Joseph could not control himself before all who stood by him. So just so you remember, this is right after Judah, one of the brothers, gives the longest speech that's recorded in Genesis. It's there that Judah pleads on behalf of his brother, Benjamin. This is the Judah who led the sale of 
of Joseph into slavery. The Judah who slept with Tamar. This is the one who led these things 20 years prior and now he is pleading to be the safety and substitution for his brother. Joseph sees a dramatic heart change. He can't control himself with emotion and he he must reveal his identity and so he tells his brothers who he is and he's moved to tears. Verse 2 shows him weeping uncontrollably and so loud it says that people outside of the room can hear him and then he kind of blurbers out in verse 3, I am Joseph. And the text shows the brothers are just shocked, literally speechless. (laughs) He calls them closer and this is where he has an opportunity to let them have it. But notice what he says in verse 5. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you. Don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves, really. They should be ashamed of themselves. I mean, who sells their brother? I mean, you might have thought about it, but you haven't done it. What would your emotions be toward your brothers if you're Joseph and for the last 20-something years they abandoned you into slavery? It would be easy to be bitter. Joseph isn't. He doesn't get revenge. He doesn't consign them to slavery in Egypt for the rest of their lives. He doesn't let them sweat it out to wonder what he's going to do to them. He doesn't call for years of reparations. He doesn't do any of those things because he believes in a sovereign God who sent him before their brother sold him. The emphasis on God's sending is undeniable. Verse 5, you sold me here, but God sent me. Verse 7, and God sent me before you. Verse 8, so it was not you who sent me here, but God. And we want to be like, Joseph, you got it all wrong. It was them. They jumped you, remember? They put you in the pit. They conspired about what they're going to do with you. It's they who sold you to the caravan. It's they who took money for you. Joseph, they sent you to Egypt. Joseph says, ultimately, no, it wasn't. Not ultimately, they didn't. Verse 8, so it was not you. So who did? God did. The first emphasis in this text is the sovereign sending of God. The second emphasis is coupled with the first one. It's the sovereign purpose of God. So you have the sending of God and you have God's purpose. Joseph reassures the brothers of God's work to send him before they sold him. But then he highlights God's purpose. Notice the purpose language in verses five through nine. Verse five, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse seven, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant. 
to keep alive for you and many survivors. Verse 8, God sent me. He made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler of all the land. Verse 9, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Joseph comforts his brothers with not only did God send him, but God sent him with a divine purpose. And here it is, we see God's sovereignty is purposeful. In his sovereignty, God doesn't merely do whatever he wants as if he's some careless person with an infinite power and mindless with this unlimited ability. God doesn't carelessly just play pool with the planets. No, instead, his sovereignty is always upheld and dispensed purposefully. The theological word for this is providence. You have sovereignty, you have providence. Very similar. John Piper makes the distinction between sovereignty and providence like this, quote, sovereignty focuses on God's right and power to do all that he wills. But in and of itself, it does not express any design or goal. But of course, God's sovereignty is purposeful. It does have design. Sovereignty is not simply powerful, but purposeful. Historically, the term providence has been used as a shorthand for this more specific focus of sovereignty, end quote. And this truth is perhaps most clearly seen in passages like Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those called according to his purpose. Ephesians 1, 11 says of God's purpose is to work all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you see how this perspective stabilizes Joseph? With all the wrong done to Joseph, this truth dominates his mind. Yes, my brothers sinfully sold me to Egypt, but it was God who sovereignly sent me. And you will wear yourself out in logical wrestling matches until you have a category in your mind for both of those things to be true. The brothers sinfully sold him, but God sovereignly sent him. And there's a well-worn path in history of humans trying to explain that reality away. But there is freedom in taking God at his word. Joseph says in verse five, don't be distressed because you sold me for God sent me. How many people have been distressed by that being true? You say, I don't understand how this can be. How can man be responsible and held accountable for sinfully doing something that God has sovereignly ordained to take place? How can God remain morally pure, sinless, and man be held morally accountable? How can the brothers sin in selling him, but God be sovereign in sending him? I once heard a popular preacher, I'm sure many of you know him, David Jeremiah, he's on the radio. 
He's preaching on the similar truth one time and he said, quote, people tell me all the time when I teach on this subject, I don't understand how this can be. He says, I tell them, you don't have to understand. You just have to believe it because the Bible teaches it, end quote. Of course, there's mystery here. We don't understand the full scope of how these things work. But listen, mystery doesn't take away clarity. Just because a truth contains mystery doesn't mean the truth isn't clear. God's word is clear on his ordaining sovereignty over all things and there is mystery to be felt in the outworkings of that plan. But we must not arrive at the conclusion that says, well, since we cannot know all things, then we cannot know anything. Or worse, because I don't like what is clear, then clearly that's not what it means. No, we know what is clear. The brother sinfully sold Joseph and it was God who sovereignly sent him. So ask the spirit of God to, to add a room into your mind that will house that biblical truth. And for some of you, you don't even feel the apparent attention there because you're perhaps hurting so deeply and you're suffering in trial right now. This text is for you. This text is not primarily for people arguing over the sovereignty of God. This text is for you and your suffering. That God wants to stabilize you with the ultimate truth that no matter how many outside variables affect your circumstances, do you trust that ultimately God orders your life? And let's get a little closer to the text. Not just general suffering and trial, but specifically when someone sins against you, like the brothers did to Joseph. Do you believe that ultimately that action is within the ordaining purposes of God for his glory and your good? Some people use the term our language of allowance when discussing these things. You know, God allows certain things to happen. And that language is okay as long as we don't mean God is passive and powerless and watching. Like he allows it to happen because he's resolved not to get involved in human affairs. He can't really do anything about it, so he just allows it. And sometimes people think that anytime anything bad happens, that God only allows it. Like he didn't plan for it, like he didn't see it coming, but now that it's kind of sort of sneaked up on him, that he makes a choice, well, I guess I'll allow this. And this is not biblical. God is not passive. But if God allows means God could stop it at any moment he chooses, but he chooses to allow it because he's planned to use it for his greater purposes. Well, then allow is fine language. In this way, by God allowing, he is ultimately fulfilling what he has ordained to take place because if he didn't want to allow something to happen for his purposes, it wouldn't. God finally allows what he ultimately ordains. Are you stabilized by this truth? That even when someone sins against you, ultimately God has ordaining sovereignty in it to use sinful actions of man to accomplish his greater purposes. 
Now, please hear me very clearly on this. This does not mean that God overlooks someone sinning against you. It doesn't mean that he dismisses the consequences. It doesn't remove the judgment. No, the sinner will face consequences in this life and unless he repents, the full wrath and fury of God in the next. Just because God has ordaining sovereignty over sin, that doesn't mean that God is the originator of sin. It doesn't mean that God doesn't care about your hurt. It doesn't mean that God is morally approving of sinful actions. It doesn't mean that he's just carelessly using you to fulfill his purposes. But it does mean that nothing can happen to you outside of God's ordaining purpose. Consider an imperfect but a helpful example, I think, from two theologians, both use it, Wayne Grudem, John Frame. They both use this illustration to help us grasp God's ordaining purposes even while mankind is held accountable. So Shakespeare wrote a play entitled Macbeth. In the play, the character Macbeth kills, murders King Duncan. Shakespeare's play, in the play, Macbeth murders King Duncan. Now who killed King Duncan? Macbeth did, of course. But we would be wrong to say that Shakespeare had no control over this. No, in fact, he had full control for it was his, to fulfill his purposes that events took place. In a similar fashion, man sins, but never in a way that is outside of God's ultimate control, but is always in a way that's perfectly consistent with God fulfilling his bigger purposes. Now, if that makes you squirm, Scripture's going to make you even more uncomfortable. <laughs> What's the worst sin anyone has ever committed against another? The most heinous sin ever committed is when guilty sinners conspired and killed the sinless Son of God. And who is guilty of this crime? The soldiers, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the crowds, they're all guilty. And yet, Luke writes of those awful events in Acts chapter 2. In verse 23, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you not love how clear scripture is? It was the lawless hands of men who killed Jesus and yet Luke says it was the definite plan in the hands of a sovereign God. And then further, Luke in chapter four, verse 27 says, quote, for truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So according to Luke, Inspired words of scripture, Jesus was delivered up to the hands of men to kill by the definite plan of God. And Herod and Pontius Pilate and Gentiles and Jews all gathered around him to do whatever God's hand had planned to take place. 
You say, yeah, but that surely that was an adjustment by God, right? Surely it wasn't his will. Isaiah 53, 10, quote, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. <laughs> Scripture will not allow vagueness on this point. You say, yeah, but that's just for Jesus. God doesn't meticulously care for my life in that way. Brothers and sisters, this is the pattern of God all throughout Scripture. Consider the sin of the Babylonian soldiers who threw Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego into the burning furnace. Bow the knee or burn in the fire. And they sin by throwing the men in and yet God sovereignly protects them and purposed it for his glory to be known among these pagan gods. Think of when Jesus tells the church in Acts chapter one, verse eight, and you will receive power of the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria until all the ends of the earth. He promises they're gonna be his witnesses and surely this means they have this big mission sending ceremony, right? Everything's good and everything's joyful. Is everything going out just as he said? No, do you remember how that sending and that scattering happened? Remember Stephen? The first martyr, he's standing in the public square. People are picking up stones. They're throwing at him. They're pummeling his flesh into the ground and he dies. Stephen's laying there dead. And the very next thing Acts says in Acts chapter eight, verse one, it says this. On that day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem arose and they were scattered through Judea and Samaria. So the sinful actions of man to pound Stephen in the ground leads to the sovereign purpose of God to scatter the church for his great commission. These are just a few examples. Scripture is full of this pattern of man sinning but God using for his ordaining purposes. Brothers and sisters, I spend time on this point so that you'll know the God of the Bible. Too many Christians only get Christian radio definitions of God. It appeals to the masses, but it's only an inch deep. It's one of the small of things of God that's worth thinking on him as he's revealed in scripture. To see him not small, that it's not a picture of God being small, hoping that his people will defend him when something tragic happens. Brothers and sisters, God needs not our embarrassment of his work in the world. He doesn't need us to justify him or get him off the hook. May we never handle scripture with an arrogant stance of, well, that's not what he really means. No, God reveals himself as the God who ordains all things according to the counsel of his will and he has no shame in doing it because it exalts his glory and it's for our eternal good. And I spend time here so that you'll be comforted when you're sinned against. To know that God's ordaining sovereignty is a truth to be comforted by, not one to avoid. Imagine a world where God is not ultimately in control of what happens to you. 
Which do you prefer? Actions done to you where God has no power or no love to intervene or actions done to you where God has wise and loving purposes working through them for good. Christian, let this be the comfort and the ups and downs of your life that in all things, God is not only sovereign over you, directing circumstances. He's not only with you, bringing peace. He's not just loving you as a father as you suffer. Those things are gloriously true, and there's a sermon on each one of those, but he is much more in every detail of your life. Yes, he's sovereign, and he is loving, and he is with you, but he is all those things for a purpose in your life. The brothers sold him, but God sent him. The third emphasis of this text, and it's the shorter one, we have God's sending, we have God's purpose. The third emphasis in the text is God's provisions. This is seen throughout the rest of the chapter. So verses 10 through 28, notice Joseph not only provides food for them, but now he gives them a place to live. Just quick trip in these verses on the provisions of Joseph, the provisions of God. Verse 10, you shall dwell in Goshen, which is a little north of Egypt, is more suitable for herdsmen. Verse 11, there I will provide for you. Verse 18, Pharaoh tells him to get his family and to bring them in. He will give them the best of the land. They'll eat the fat of the land. Verse 20, have no concerns for your goods, for the best of all the land is yours. Verse 22, he gives them new clothes, 300 shekels. Verse 23, he loads them with bread and grain. Here these brothers are, they go to get bread and they get Egypt. I imagine it would be something like you going to Publix to buy rice and beans because you can't afford anything else and you get there and they say, hey, just have the store instead. This first layer of the text, the immediate context of this narrative is this. They have been preserved by Joseph's position and provided for by his generosity. And that's the key here. Preserved by his position and provided for by his generosity. Joseph is modeling grace to not count their sin against them, but to receive them and bless them instead. And it's that model that takes us to another layer of the text. Perhaps the higher, the, the broader more redemptive layer of this text. It's through the people being preserved and provided for in Joseph that we're introduced to God's pattern of preserving and providing for his people. There, listen, there is, a, there is a relational, horizontal sermon here between brothers and Joseph, between you and counterparts, whoever you're maybe in friction with, who's sinned against you. There's a relational aspect here to see the model of grace that Joseph gives, but don't miss the vertical aspect. The vertical aspect is the pattern of Joseph preserving and providing, showing us the pattern of God preserving and providing. Just as God sent Joseph to Egypt with a purpose to preserve life, you know the climax of that pattern is God sending his son to preserve eternal life. And just as he sent him with purpose to preserve life, not only do we see that, but we also see how God lavishes us with provision. Just think of the pattern that God has given them here. 
Do you remember the Exodus? God sends all the plagues against the Pharaoh in Egypt. The people of God eventually leave Egypt. Have you ever wondered how'd they get to Egypt to begin with? It's right here. It's it's right here. Joseph brings his brothers in and they start living. They start multiplying. It becomes a problem and the Pharaoh doesn't like it anymore. And so he puts them into slavery and it sets up another time where God will preserve them and provide for them. Preserves them in the Exodus, provides for them in the wilderness. Preserves them when the time of judges and kings come, provides for them through prophets. Preserves them in exile to the Assyrians and Babylonians and provides for them through remnants. Preserves them through the work of Christ and provides for them eternal blessing. Preserves the church today and provides daily grace through the ministry of the Spirit of the Word. This is what God does. He preserves and he provides. Glory in this relational horizontal level, but don't miss the vertical level of what God has done for you. Because see, when Joseph went to Egypt, he went to preserve life. He created a plan for the famine and then all these people started flocking in. They got food and so his brothers could then come and and get food and by his brothers coming to get food, they then live in Egypt and then as they're living in Egypt, they're preserved and as they're preserved, the line of Abraham continues and as the line of Abraham continues, it leads to the Savior Christ being preserved and provided for you. Do you believe the sovereignty of God is what stabilizes your life? I'll close with this. A few of you may have heard of Thomas Jackson. Who is Thomas Jackson? Well, maybe not as many of you know him by that name because you know him by the name of Stonewall Jackson. Why was he given the name Stonewall Jackson? He was a famous general in the Confederate Army. Story goes, he would sit on his horse. He would stand close to the battle line so that he could direct his troops. And as it goes, uh, one of the troops looked on in amazement and said, look at the general standing like a stone wall. Though he was a flawed man for sure, Jackson was also known for his faith. It's recorded in one of his biographies, his perspective on death. He says, quote, My religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. That is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. Do you hear the stabilizing effect of the sovereignty of God? May each of you know this God of the scriptures who is sovereign in your affliction, who is purposeful in his actions, who brings stability in the storm. And as you know this God, may each of us behold him and adore him as we should and be comforted by his ordaining providences over us. Let's pray.